1 John 1, 5 through 10. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, your way is perfect time and time again in every respect, from every possible angle, your word proves true. It is you, O Lord, our God, who lights our lamps, who lightens our darkness. Be a shield for those who take refuge in you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. First John one, five through ten. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Last week in verses 1 through 4, John made it clear that we enjoy fellowship with God through the apostolic gospel. I was calling this the eternal fellowship because in some sense, not in every possible sense, but in some sense, we have been welcomed into the eternal fellowship between God and the Son and also, though he's not mentioned, the Holy Spirit. And it is this joy of communion with God that is eternal life that begins even now and we experience as we fellowship with God. And we remember that John's agenda in this book is that you, that believers, may know that you have eternal life. Which means that there are some who do not have eternal life. And so we may ask, are there any indicators, are there proofs, are there litmus tests that will help us distinguish between light and darkness, between those who have eternal life and fellowship with God and those who do not? And particularly for ourselves, do I have eternal life? When Andrew uh, Zeller was here, uh, he brought over his his father, Dwight, sent with him about a 10 inch chunk of a cedar fence post. He said, Zach will know what to do with this. Uh, And so uh, this week I was uh, building a little box out of this cedar fence post. And and then my kids come running into the garage and and they said, what's that smell? It stinks. And I was horrified to learn that these children are not my children. (laughs) Because if you've lived at all, you know the, the, the wonderful smell of cedar. Of course, I was telling Kelly this and she said, yeah, but they all look exactly like you. So. This is kind of what John's doing in this passage is he tells us about God, about his very essence, about who he is. What is he like? And then he compares sort of hypothetical but realistic claims to have divine fellowship with God. 
with the very nature and character of God himself. And the assumption behind this is if there's any true fellowship with God, there will be some inevitable resemblances, some recognizable fruits of this relationship that will serve as indicators of genuine fellowship or hypocritical fellowship. In this passage, John gives us uh, five if statements, three claims where he says, if we say, if we say, and each of these claims possibly, probably represent something that the, the proto-Gnostic, the, the false teachers uh, might have said. And these were ideas that may have been influencing the people that John is writing to. And so John here is making a divide between true fellowship and false fellowship. And he distinguishes them plainly so that his readers may know they are of the light rather than the darkness if they believe the gospel uh, that the apostles teach. And so John here, he begins with God. And that's the first point is that God is light. God is light in verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. A sort of natural place to begin if somebody comes to us for counsel, wondering what is a Christian? Am I a Christian? Do do I have eternal life is to sort of begin with an examination of them. What are they like? What are their attributes? How do they live their life? What are the signals they're showing? And these are important questions to be sure, but without a frame of reference, they really don't mean anything. John is a much better counselor. He begins where we should always begin. He begins with God. What is God like? What are his attributes? Who is he? And we would orient ourselves much better in this life if we would follow John's example here and simply begin with God. Now, who is John to tell us what God is like? Well, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, he spent time with him. He heard him. He saw him. He even touched him. And here he says that the message about God that he is proclaiming to these people is one that he received from Jesus. And the message is God is light. God is light. At first glance, there's no place that I could find in the Gospels where Jesus said these words explicitly. God is light. But when we understand that Jesus came to reveal God to us, to reveal the Father to us, then we understand that the things that are true about Jesus are are things that are true about God. Jesus is the Logos, the divine word, the revelation of God to men in the flesh. And so when, when John speaks about Jesus or when Jesus speaks about himself and John calling him the light, it's also true of God the Father as well. So a few examples, John 1, 14, and then 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. So Jesus makes the Father known. Likewise, Philip asks, in, in chapter 14 of John, he says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, I have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. So he's revealing God to them. This is what Jesus was about, always revealing God to his disciples as a revelation. The things that are true about him are true about God in general. So when Jesus speaks about himself as light, he reveals God to be light. And he does this many times. Again, just some examples in John, uh, John 1, 4 and 5. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Just a little bit later in in the same chapter, he that is John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then again in verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone which was coming into the world. And then Jesus says of himself in chapter eight, I am the light of the world. One of the I am statements. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk, will have the light of light. And then in John twelve forty six, I have come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, of course, this is not a, a new idea that God is light. This is something that has its roots all the way back in the Old Testament. Even Isaiah um, chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Or Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Uh, Stott, I think, was helpful here, defining light. He says, light and darkness are used metaphorically in Scripture in several senses. Intellectually, light is truth and darkness is ignorance or error. Morally, light is purity and darkness is evil. In both of those senses, truth and righteousness are represented here in this passage as light. And John tells us that God is light. So he is truth. He is righteousness. Some have pointed out that that ancient pagan gods are often represented with celestial bodies, these things that emanate light or reflect light. But John says that God is light itself. This means that in the context of truth and of morality or righteousness, that there's no, no body of knowledge, no set of standards, no celestial law that exists sort of just in the ether, that exists outside or apart from God or to which God submits. He is truth itself. He is righteousness itself. He is light itself. John reiterates in the negative, in him is no darkness at all. Literally, no darkness, none. In Greek mythology, the, the gods are, are kind of uh, a blundering mess. They do some good things, but mostly they're, they're conniving, self-centered, dishonest. Even in the divine, in Greek mythology, there's a mixture of light and darkness. But the God that John presents to us has no darkness at all. He, he's pure, unadulterated light. There's no yin and yang in God. 
God is light, and in him there is no darkness. There is none. Which leads us to the question then, how do we sinners stumbling through the darkness enjoy fellowship with light itself? How is that even possible? Or even probably a better question, how can he enjoy fellowship with us? The following five if statements represent three claims, these if we say statements, that deal really with three bad answers to the question, how can God have fellowship with sinners? And the first bad answer is that sin does not disrupt fellowship with God. John says, to the contrary, light and darkness are mutually exclusive. Sin does disrupt fellowship with God. And so to put the point positively, and this is the second point, that light shines in the darkness. Light shines in the darkness. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the error that John is likely fighting is some kind of dualistic, Gnostic heresy that if that matter is evil and spirit is good. And so of what consequence really is it what we do with our bodies if matter doesn't matter? Does sin in the body really disrupt spiritual fellowship? That would be the question. We might not think in the same terms today, but we have the same problem today. We might call it antinomianism. We might call it what's been called carnal Christianity. It's the impulse that says, I can do what I want and I can still be a Christian. I can still have fellowship with God. Because I'm a Christian. Nothing I do can take away my justification. So I'm all good. I'll never become unjustified. But John is quite plain, to put it in Pauline terms, what fellowship does light have with darkness? John also says in John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness. This means it has an effect. It dispels darkness. It casts out darkness. We know this intuitively. If we shine a, a one million lumen flashlight in a dark corner, it's no longer a dark corner. Light dispels darkness. But we want to cling to this idea in some sense that sin doesn't really disrupt fellowship with God. It's of little consequence to him. He's light. He's full of grace and forgiveness. It's all good. We'll be, we'll be good with him. But that attitude, John says, makes us liars. If we have that attitude, we are a liar. He says in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Our, our, our practice betrays our profession. We do not live in truth. We contradict reality itself. Paul frames it in this way in Ephesians 5, For at one time you were darkness, not just in darkness, you were darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Or in Romans thirteen twelve, the night is far gone, 
The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jesus says himself in John 11. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John puts the same thought in the positive in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, he uses this metaphor of walking. Walking is referring to the way we live our lives. He says we cannot walk in darkness. We must walk in the light. If we enjoy fellowship with light itself, inevitably we will walk in light. This is what Calvin says. He says this doctrine, however, depends on a higher principle that God sanctifies all who are his. For it is not a naked precept that he gives, which requires that our life should be holy, but rather shows that grace of Christ serves for this end to dissipate darkness and to kindle in us the light of God. As though he said, what God communicates to us is not a vain fiction, for it is necessary that the power and effect of this fellowship should shine forth in our life. Otherwise, the possession of the gospel is fallacious. So we must walk in the light if we have fellowship with the light. But we should be careful also not to read verses 6 and 7 as uh, causal conditions. That is, if you walk in a certain way or to a high enough degree, then you will have fellowship with God. Then you will have eternal life. It is actually the other way around. Walking in the light is the test or the fruit of the reality. It's kind of like a, a, a culture. This is a crude example, but pardon. But if spores grow in the Petri dish, it's because the, the surface or, or area you tested had the spores to begin with. He's saying, if you walk in this way, it's evident you have fellowship and you have cleansing blood. So the light shines in the darkness. The light dispels darkness. We're to walk in light and not in darkness if we're in fellowship with God. Now, if we're not careful, these truths can, and I've seen this many times, lead us into a sort of frantic neurosis. Well, what does it mean to walk in the light? How much light is enough light to be sufficient evidence that I walk with God? If sin disrupts fellowship, are my persistent sins ruining my fellowship with God? But this is exactly the point, isn't it? If we're never led to the conclusion that we cannot enjoy fellowship with God with with our own truth and righteousness, then we'll never enjoy fellowship with God at all. So it's actually a grace to us that our sin is pointed out to us. So this is the the third point, is that light illumines or exposes our darkness. It reveals our darkness to us. Notice in verse 7, he says, Walk in the light as he is in the light, 
But we know that he cannot mean to the degree that he is in the light. Walk, walk in the light to the degree that God is in the light because he is light itself. And we're painfully aware of our own darkness. So I think it must mean because God is in the light, you also must walk in the light. Moreover, here we're rescued from the error of perfectionism or the idea that you have to be perfect to enjoy fellowship with God in verse 7 because he says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he's assuming some level of ongoing sin. Notice the tense in the verb in, in, in the Greek, it's more pronounced. They're present active verbs, which means that the action is present, it's now, and it's ongoing. So we could paraphrase, if we are walking in the light, then we are having fellowship with God and with one another. And the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from our sin in an ongoing, active way. In other words, for those in Christ, through faith, in the apostolic gospel, all of these things are happening together. We have fellowship. We have the cleansing blood simultaneously. And praise the Lord that the maintenance of our fellowship with God does not stand or fall on our ability to live in the light. But instead on the cleansing power of Christ's blood. His blood washes away the stain of all our sins and making us pure and radiant to stand in the presence of God. John makes the point even more pointedly in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is the second claim, the second if we say statement. If we say we have no sin, um, we might call this the error of perfectionism or Pelagianism or, or simply just legalism. Okay, I'll grant that that sin breaks fellowship with God, but I don't have any. John underscores the darkness of this claim in contrast to pure, unadulterated light, which is truth itself. Those who claim to have no sin are walking in blindness and self-deception. So it's worse than just buying into some, some teaching or some false notion that somebody else told you. We're actually deceiving ourselves, tricking ourselves, buying into our own lie. These are those people who are doing right, what's right in their own eyes and calling it good, calling it upright, which is an easy thing to do. We see this sort of self-justification in our day in, in spades. Uh, if we redefine sin, then we can call anything good, from, from sodomy to murder. The book of Isaiah announces woe against this way of, of thinking in, in chapter 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Anyone who says, I have no sin, does not have the truth in him. He is self-deceived. He is of the darkness. However, the converse is also true. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to John, confession of sin is part and parcel with walking in the light, with living in fellowship with God. 
Yes, I am a grave sinner. And not only that, but here are my sins. Will you forgive me for my sins? Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not just something we do initially when we say a prayer or accept Jesus or or whatever language we want to use, but it's an ongoing thing to repent of our sins, to turn from sins. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 15, is titled, Of Repentance Unto Life. The first uh, article there, it says, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Then it says, By it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, proposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the all the ways of his commandments. And finally, in the fifth, uh, it says men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty. I, I enjoy this language. It is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. That means we repent generally of our wickedness, but we also repent, we confess our sins individually, the things we've done to breach God's law. Calvin, in his commentary, warns against the danger of forgiving ourselves. We hear that language a lot. You need to forgive yourself. That's not what he's, he's talking about here. He doesn't mean we're supposed to wallow in self-pity and, and guilt about our sins for our whole lives. But we are too quick to say, I'm good. I don't have any sin. We're, we're always coming up with ways to rationalize away the evil that we do. And if we're always self-justifying rather than calling our sin, sin, and confessing it and seeking forgiveness, we ought to be very concerned by that. If we say we have no sin, rather, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. We're not forgiving ourselves. God is forgiving us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. How much better, not to mention more effective or effective at all, is it for God to forgive us our sins than for us to forgive our own sins? Inmates in prison are always forgiving themselves, coming up with, I didn't do it. And yet there they sit in prison, their debt is unforgiven. They're not forgiven at all. God must forgive us. He is faithful to forgive. And he is faithful, certainly, to his covenant because the blood of Christ was shed for sinners and he fulfills that promise. But I think even at a more basic level here, he is faithful to his own character. You've heard the saying, be true to yourself. Uh, No, don't be true to yourself. That is a bad idea. But I think maybe the one person who can rightly follow that advice is God. God is true to himself, to his character. He is faithful to who he is. He is pure light, pure righteousness, pure truth. And therefore, he is faithful to forgive. 
And he's also just. Which initially we might think he's just to condemn for sin. And indeed he would be. But for those in fellowship with him, with his son, whose sins are cleansed by the propitious blood of Christ, it would actually be unjust for him not to forgive our sins. That's what Augustus' top lady says in in Faith Reviving. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. It would be unjust for him to do that for those of us whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sproul says that the good news of the Bible, the biblical message, is that the Lord is willing and ready to forgive us when we turn from our sins. At our conversion, we are justified and forgiven, and the guilt of our sin is no longer placed on our accounts, for it is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. But after conversion, when we fall short, forgiveness and cleansing are available again and again. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them. We might ask, why if my sins are already forgiven, when I believe in Jesus, past, present, and future, why do I have to keep confessing and repenting and receiving forgiveness? We ask this question because we fail to remember that God is not only the just judge of the universe who has declared us righteous once for all, but he is our father with whom we have an ongoing relationship. John is here not telling us how to get into the good graces of God. He is contrasting those who say, I have no sin with those who confess their sin. And the former are living in darkness and the latter are in fellowship with the light. So for John, this continual process of confession, repentance, forgiveness, cleansing are all part and parcel of what it means to live in fellowship with God, to live in the light. In verse 10, he, he returns to this, this final claim, this final if we say uh, statement, which is very similar to verse 8. But in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we may be willing to admit, okay, I'm not perfect, but at the moment I, I don't have anything to confess. Nothing's coming to mind offhand. If we are unwilling or unable to confess our particular sins particularly, can we really say with any conviction, I am a sinner in need of a perfect Savior? If we claim not to have anything to confess... Not only are we liars, but John says we make God out to be a liar. And his word that tells us about our sin and our Savior does not abide in us. In effect, we have begun to call the light darkness, which is blasphemy. Calvin again here, he says he goes still further that they who claim purity for themselves blaspheme God. We see that he everywhere represents the whole race of man as guilty of sin. Whosoever then tries to escape this charge carries on war with God and accuses him of falsehood. 
So if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. We make him out to be darkness, who is light. But God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And two results we see come from, inevitably, exposure to the light. The first is that our walk will be illumined. We will begin to reflect the light of truth and righteousness that are intrinsic to our Heavenly Father. We will walk in the light. The second inevitable result of exposure to the light is that our sin will be illumined. In contrast to true light, the dimness of our most luminescent efforts to be holy will, will be stark. The contrast between true light and our, our candles, which will lead us inevitably toward confession and forgiveness and cleansing that God is faithful and just to dispense to us in Jesus Christ by his blood. Praise God. Amen.